Welcome. You're listening to the podcast of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Well, good morning. I want to welcome you. As Phil said, we're so glad that uh, we can all be together this morning to worship the Lord, to hear from Him. Um, This morning, we're going to be looking at the passage we've read all the month of December, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And when I was asked to do this, I thought, well, this is awesome. It'd be kind of like top 10 plays, go through the highlights of the, of the sermons that we've been through in, in Advent, um, Vespers. And then I was told, no, really what we want to do is go through one through five and seven. So it got a little bit harder, but this is what we're going to do. Um, we have been studying the four names of the Lord in Isaiah chapter uh, nine, verse six. And this morning, we're going to look at the broader context that it came to. Now, if you know about the prophet Isaiah, he prophesied over a long period of time, 50, 60 years. And um, he, he prophesied a message that was both a message of judgment and a message of hope. Um, he would say that though Israel will face the consequences of their rebellion... His words are full of hope for the day when God would restore his people to himself. God will establish his kingdom through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And one day he'll return to create a new heaven and a new earth. And the prophecy goes back and forth uh, through judgment and hope. And the, the section that we're in is a section of encouragement to the remnant, to the people who live differently than the rest of the world. They had a different orientation of life and death and the life hereafter. They had a different submission to authority. They had a different understanding of the future, and it totally changed the way that they lived their lives. The background of this prophecy is darkness and gloom and anguish. Chapter 8 ends with, and they'll look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness and gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. That's the background of the passage. Would you stand now as we read our passage this morning, Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. For in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. 
the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated and let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the certainty of it. We thank you, Lord, that we can trust it. We can trust you and we pray now that you'd open our hearts to it. Give us ears to hear, hearts to understand, and wills to obey. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, Isaiah wrote uh, somewhere around 750 B.C. And he looked out on the horizon and he saw a real dark situation. Assyria, who was a heathen nation, was about to come and conquer his people, the kingdom of Israel. And Isaiah looks out into this dark situation and he sees a bright light. He sees a vision of the Lord, and this is what we see, this great light in verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. I, I want you to see the certainty of what he writes. Remember, he's writing some 700 years before the Lord came, and he's writing it with such certainty. There's a tense in the Hebrew language called the prophetic perfect. And it's a, it's a tense that's used that you can look at the future with such certainty that it is as if it had already happened. He looks and he sees Jesus and he speaks of his life and his ministry and his victories as if they had already happened. And it's meant to encourage our hearts. I have a son who's a senior in college and he came home for a few days before Christmas just to for us just to kind of hang out. It was really fun. And one night um, I, we had dinner and I was going to go clean up. And I said, why don't you find us a Christmas movie to watch? be fun, just watch a Christmas movie. And so I left and he was kind of thumbing through the channels and I cleaned up briefly and then I went back in and there was a football game. But it wasn't any football game. It was a football game that had been played a couple of weeks earlier that the school that he is in had won. And I thought, this is a great Christmas movie. Let's watch this. And so we sat down and watched the game. I knew the way it ended. And as I watched that game, my heart never started to race. I didn't have to go out to the store a couple of times. Didn't have to go to the bathroom 10 times. I was able to just sit and enjoy the game because I knew the way it ended. That's what the Lord's doing with this. He's saying, look, I know that you feel like this game is tense and hard, but this is the way it ends. Five times in verses two through four, we see what God has done. Matthew uses this particular uh, passage to announce the Lord's ministry on earth. The Lord comes, he, is, um, he comes and he's baptized comes out, goes into the wilderness. He's tempted by the devil. 
And then he begins his ministry, and Matthew picks it up right here. In Matthew chapter 4, I'll read it. It says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he, Jesus, withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, Zebulun and Naphtali, if you look at the geographic uh, layout of the, of the Holy Land, they are the northernmost regions, which means they were also the first to be conquered by the Assyrians. About 735 B.C., the rest of the northern kingdom fell in 721 B.C., but the Assyrians came into these two regions, and they conquered them. They overwhelmed them, and they deported all the Jews, and they populated it with their own people. That's why he said it's treated with contempt, because they felt like they were contemptible. But now he says that this place of contempt will be the first place that we see the light dawn, Galilee of the Gentiles. So what we see at the outset of Jesus' earthly life and ministry is a heart for the nations of the world. He comes and begins his earthly ministry with a ministry to the Gentiles, us, to the nations. So there's this great light that he sees, and he sees this great liberation and expansion in verse 3 and 4 and 5. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. He says that people are going to come into this kingdom, and they are going to be conquered. What, what happens when a nation conquers another nation? Like we said, they would deport them. They would be exiles. They'd be refugees. And their lives would be hard. He says, not so with my kingdom. The fruit of the conquering of my kingdom is joy, fulfillment. The king's reign would be marked by joy, not anguish, as other conquerors do. And it is for the nations. You know, the Lord, when he was about to go to the cross, the first indication in John's gospel he was going to the cross is in John chapter 12, and some Gentiles came to him. Some Greeks actually came to him. And he said his soul was troubled. And what will I say? Save me from this hour? No, but it's for this reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And the Lord says, I have, the Father said, I have glorified it. And then Jesus makes that statement that I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to myself. His heart has always been for the nations. And he said, this is the way my kingdom expands. In verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the, uh, boot of the trampling warrior... In battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And so he compares this victory 
that's coming 700 years from now to something that they knew. They were familiar. He says, as in the day of Midian. Now, you might not know what that is, but if you were living in that time, you would know what he's talking about. He's talking about Gideon. You might know that name. You might be familiar with stories in Judges chapter 6 through 8, and the Midianites were oppressing the, the children of Israel, and they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord said, okay, I'm going to work deliverance for you. And he calls Gideon, and Gideon is the comes from the smallest tribe and the most obscure people of that tribe. And you may know the story, the Lord raises them up. And so uh, the Midianites had an army of about 135,000 people. And Gideon mustered all the troops he could and he came up with 22,000. And he said, well, you know, I guess if the Lord's involved, then maybe we got a chance. And the Lord said, no, you got too many people. Why? Well, because if you win, you'll say, you did it, not me. I, I, we got too many people, we got to get rid of some. He said, right. he said, first thing you do, tell anybody that's fearful, that doesn't want to be here, doesn't want to fight, tell them to go home. They lost over half their army. They're down to 10,000. And the Lord says, still too many. That's still too many. So he said, take them down to the river and tell them to drink some water. And I want you to separate the ones that stick their hand in a drink like this from the ones that get down on the hands and knees and drink. I said, sure. So there's 10,000, 9,900, uh, 9,300 of them. No, 9,700. I, I didn't have my calculator when I wrote this. <laughs> th th that wasn't part. I, w I tried to do the math. Don't ever do that. Okay, so all but 300... I went to Alabama <laughs> a long time ago. All, all but 300 of them uh, drank with their mouth. And the Lord said, okay, send those 9,700 away. Now this is right. We can fight this war now with 300 people. 300 people against 135,000. This is what the Lord brings to his mind when he's saying this is what the victory is like. So they go at night, they go and surround the camp with their 300 people, and they've got a torch inside of a jar that's opaque and a trumpet. And Gideon says, as soon as you hear my voice, I want you to crack that jar and let the light shine and blow the trumpet. That was their battle plan. And that's what they did. And the Lord turned the Midianites against one another. They, they killed all their own people, and then they ran. And all the Israelites had to do was enter into the victory. They entered into the spoil. He made it very clear that he won the battle against overwhelming odds. And you had nothing to do with it. That's how he wants us to see the victory that he won on the cross. What do we do? We divide the spoils. He shows his power. Jesus defeats the enemy of his people, not the Assyrians, not the Babylonians, and not the Romans. What are our enemies? Sin, death, God's wrath. I don't care who you think your enemies are, those are the enemies. And Jesus, when he hung on that cross and endured God's wrath, he defeated our enemies. What did we do? We just watched. And now we enter into the spoils. 
There's that story in John chapter 4 that, um, where Jesus is talking to the woman from Samaria and, and she sees who he is and she rejoices and she goes off and tells all of her friends to come and see this man who told me everything I'd ever done and they all come running out and, and Jesus says, hey, look, I'm sending you to reap what you hadn't worked for. These other people have gone before you, done the hard work, so that he who reaps and he who sows may what? Rejoice together. We rejoice when people come into the kingdom. People rejoice when they come into the kingdom. So he breaks the bondage of sin in our life. Jesus said, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave doesn't remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's what he did. He decisively broke the yoke, the staff, and the rod of our oppressors, and he set us free to serve under him. And it was just like Gideon's battle. And now he tells us about this great king, and again, we won't go into it because we've done that for the last four weeks, uh, the names of the Lord. But... um, Just remember that kings' names are normally given to the king after their reign or at least late in their reign when we see what the temperament of their reign is going to be. You have names like Alexander the Great from from Greece. Mary, what's her name? Bloody Mary from England. Ivan was one from Russia, and his name was Ivan the Terrible. And my favorite, Charles, Charles the Bald from France. So, so you, you get a, a feel for the kings and their kingdoms. And he announces the, the rule of this king 750 years before his birth. He said, to us a child is born. He comes as a human. To us a son is given from all eternity. He's God and he's man. And the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Again, go back and listen to the sermons. Wonderful counselor that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge lie in Jesus. He always has the best answers for everything. Mighty God, he is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us. Everlasting Father, this is the relational name of all the names that Jesus chose to give himself to tell us how we relate to him. It's the word Father. We relate to him as Father. You can spend the rest of 20, you can spend the whole 2024 trying to understand what it means that God is your Father. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, said, if you want to understand how well somebody understands Christianity, see what they understand about the fact that God's their Father. And then he is the Prince of Peace. This is peace between God and peace between God and man and the fulfillment that we have that comes from that that the world knows nothing of. 
This is his king. These are his throne names that come that we experience the benefits from because of what he's done for us. And he's a king. This is a monarchy. Now, we're not used to that. We're not used to monarchies. We're not used to these sovereigns that rule. But they understood that. They understood that the king is everything. Uh, One of the documentaries that I've watched over the last, I don't know how long, is The Crown. I don't know if you've seen or heard of The Crown. It's just about the monarchy in England. And uh, recently I got to the the part where... uh, Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip are, are married, and, and Diana is married to Charles, and she's not happy with the way that she's being treated in the family. She's not happy with the family. She's not happy with the way she's treated. She feels like an outsider. She's not appreciated. And she meets with someone who is a, a, a writer, and he agrees to listen to her and write a book. And it was going to be kind of scandalous. And there's this scene in the movie that explains the monarchy and Prince Philip, who has kind of been an advocate of hers right along, meets with her. And he says this in the movie. I don't know if it's in real life, but it's in the movie. Everyone in this system is lost, lonely, irrelevant, an outsider, apart from the one person, the only person that matters. She is the oxygen we all breathe, the essence of all our duty. Your problem is that you seem to be confused about who that person is. Isn't that the Christian life? Don't we know that Jesus is everything, and don't we spend our whole life trying to clear up the confusion that we really think it's us? He's everything. He's the king. And he conquered us, and he comes into our lives, and we come into his life. He brings us peace and joy and eternal pleasures. This great king. So there's just a couple of great implications of all this that I want to leave with you. And the first one is go. (laughs) Go into the world and make disciples of all the nations. Jesus, by starting his ministry in Zebulun and Naphtali sets not only the direction of his ministry, but the direction of his church until he returns. We are saved to go into the world. That was his last word to his disciples. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you and lo, I'm with you always even to the end of the age. The implication for our church, go. We're going to get to be exposed to that all next month. I would encourage you to make that a priority just to come and hear. And then almost counterintuitively is to wait. To wait. That was a theme of our Advent Vespers. Wait. Every message was about waiting, but we wait differently. We wait on the Lord to return, but we wait in hope. We wait knowing that he has been enthroned and that one day he will come back and take us to be with himself. Our world situation is no less dark than theirs was. 
And I just read in 2022, over 360 million Christians suffered significant persecution for their faith. The world's always dark, <laughs> but the light always overcomes the darkness. And one day he'll come. And we've got to decide in the meantime, which narrative are we going to listen to? Are we going to listen to the truth that Christ has come, he has set up, he has overthrown his enemies, and one day he will come back? Or are we going to listen to the narrative the world is telling us and the news is telling us everything that this world is dark and there's no hope? It's a waiting in faith. It's a waiting in longing, longing for Jesus to return. You know, I, I think the older I get, the more I long. The more of my people that are in heaven, the more I want to be there. I wish it was just Jesus. It is Jesus, but it's more. Richie Sessions, when he uh, did his uh, night with the Vesper services, he, may, he said, he talked about this longing, and it was so powerful. He said, we're homesick. We're homesick for Jesus. We're homesick for a new heavens and a new earth. Homesickness is how faith feels here and now. A deep longing for the end of death and sin and evil inside of us and outside of us. But as we confess in the creed, he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom will have no end. One of the... Uh, movies that I watched. I didn't watch a bunch. I watched a, a, a few, but it was um, a movie about Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Um, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, and if you know the story, you've probably heard the poem he wrote, which was turned into a song, but if you've heard the, uh, his story, he was America's poet. He lived in the mid-1800s, and he wrote great poems of encouragement and, and um, then, uh, like 1861, I think, his wife, whom he adored, uh, her dress caught on fire by a candle while he was taking a nap, and she just went up into flames, and he, he tried to put a rug over and put it out, and then he just tried to lay on it himself, and he damaged himself so badly he was, that he couldn't go to her funeral when she died, and also he had to wear a beard the rest of his life, and his despair was unbelievable. Two years later, his oldest son, Charlie, wanted to go and join um, the Union Army and go off into the Civil War, and he reluctantly agreed for that. And right around Christmas of 1863, he gets a message that says that his son Charlie had been wounded in battle and probably would be paralyzed if he lived at all. And Longfellow gets on a train, and he goes down to where he is. And his mantra for his whole life with his children had been, it's not Christmas until you hear the bells. And so that night, he heard the bells, and he wrote the first verse. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and mild and sweet, their song repeats of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And then he starts writing about the war between the states and everything that's going on and just how that just seems to go against everything that he's seeing. And he writes verse 6, and in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. 
for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. If you don't know Jesus, that's where your song ends. But he did. And he reflected and he listened and then he remembered what the Lord said and he writes verse 7, then peal the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. If you've been conquered by Jesus, the seventh verse is the end of your story. And the seventh verse is the soul of your message. And we have the privilege to go and teach the world the seventh verse of that song. Father, we pray that you would just pierce our hearts with this. Lord, give us grace to believe you, to trust you and to live in light of the truth of this message. Lord, we pray that you would help us to know that you are the king and that you reign. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more about Covenant, please visit covenantpres.com.